Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Renee Mitchell. She was a 22-year member of the Sacramento Police Department, serving in patrol, detective, recruiting schools, and the regional transit system. She's the co-founder of the American Society for Evidence-Based Policing. She also holds a PhD and a JD. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Renee. Thanks for having me. Why did you become a police officer? Oh, that's such a long story. If I told you the actual like whole story that I used to tell, um, but honestly, it was just happenstance. I um, was a therapist before I was a cop, and I was working um, in a live-in facility for women who it was a diver- diversion program. Women who had been arrested for drugs and alcohol, and now had to. Um, basically go through a program instead of going to jail. So I was working with the women um, and their kids on recovery um, from addiction. And one of the guys that worked at the house with house with me was an ex-cop. He was our boat rehab guy that would help place the women in jobs when they were getting out. And uh, he and I would chit chat. He would, and he just told me one day, he's like, you're going to be so bored as a therapist sitting inside an office. He's like, I could already tell with your personality. He's like, you should be a cop. And for me, like where I grew up, I knew nothing about um, the cops other than when they would chase us off our school grounds, when we would jump the fence at night to swim in the pool and when they gave me speeding tickets. So I just asked him, I'm like, well, what do they do? You know, What's the job like? And he told me about it. So my attitude at the time was, I'll just go apply. And if I get the job, I'll go check it out. And if I like it, then that's what I'm going to do. And if I don't like it, I could always go back to being a therapist. That's kind of like, it was just this, like, I I was not one of those people that was like, oh, I want to be a cop from when I was a kid. Like, it had never crossed my mind to ever become a cop. And I hated the academy. Like I think pretty much every single second of every single day, the only thing I told myself is that they have to let me go home at some point today. And that's what got me through the academy. And then my attitude was, well, let me see what it's like on the street. And for me, getting out the field and having things be different on a daily basis and even moment to moment kept me in the career. And Honestly, looking back, I think it's probably uh, it was a good career choice for me because I think I would probably have switched careers every three years, getting bored and wanting to do something new. And in policing, you can essentially have just, you know, 20 different jobs over a 20 year career. If you move to a different unit, you know, year to year, nobody moves that quickly. But to me, that's what kept me in policing for so long because I could move to a new, you know, a whole new position and do a whole new type of interesting work and not have to like start all over again. You mentioned the the people who wanted to be a cop for a long time. And that's, I think, a popular perception with some people is, is how, is how the people who decide to become police officers, what characteristics they have. And maybe that's changed over time. One of the cliches I think is that there's the kid who either got beat up and would like to, throw his weight around or the kid who beat people up and uh, would like to continue doing that if they always wanted to be a police officer. But in general, do you think that there's sort of a mindset of people who want to be police officers? Maybe you're a little bit different because you kind of happened into it and there are just different types who come into the job. Yeah. And that's what there really are different personalities and there's different 
reasons why people came in, you know, like my partner that I had for a, a, a long time, she knew she wanted to be a cop from kindergarten. You know, she was kindergarten class, a canine came in with, you know, his dog. And that from that moment on, she's like, I'm going to grow up and be a police officer. And like, she's still, I think she just retired recently, but you know, that was her whole like main focus. And there's other people like, of course, you know, you always meet those people where you're like, oh, like you kind of feel like you, you became a cop. So you could, cause you have control issues either way, because you want to like, you want to control people because of whatever happened in your childhood. But I think there's probably a more, um, what I see as more prevalent are those people that just like, they have a soft spot for helping people. Like they want to be detectives or they saw, you know, um, like a TV show with sex assault victims, or they had a friend that had something happen to them. So they want to go into the field because they want to become an investigator. They want to, you know, investigate homicides. They want to, they want to be there in those moments in people's lives when they're like kind of at their worst moment. So that way they could be the ones to be like, you know, I'm here for you. I'm going to help you. And so I would say I see more people with that kind of point of view a little bit other than the, I think the driving fast, like getting to be tough kind of thing is a piece of it, you know, because you do get to be like the person in charge, but I don't ever think there's like one person that's entirely like one thing or another. Do departments when they're recruiting or in that training process, make an effort to weed out people who wanted to become cops for the wrong reasons? Yeah. So, and that's the hard part. I mean, because you know, where I came from, you know, we ran into our own set of issues with, you know, officers um, that had problems in the field. And from what I saw, I don't, I don't really know a good way to detect it because we all do, like for my agency, we all did the MMPI, like the, you know, the multi, what is it, the multiphasic personality inventory? Well, that just kind of weeds out like your major, like, people that have, yeah. <laughs> Like psych issues, but it doesn't weed out like people that, you know, if they have an opportunity to do something that could, you know, that they could take advantage of somebody and it doesn't weed out like the, not even like the heavy handed people, but it's also so, and I'm probably jumping ahead, but it's also part of culture too. Because the one thing I've always told people, like, because I was in recruiting for a little bit, like when you get into a police agency, like you'll understand if the culture's right for you. And that's where like my agency was not a heavy handed agency. So like if you were kind of like coming in to, you know, take names and kick ass, but you wouldn't have fit in my organization. Like you would have left, you know, to a different organization because you wouldn't have gotten your fill for that kind of work, you know? And it's a like, so to me, it's like finding like where you fit with an organization. And then there's organizations that are so touchy feely that like, there's some cops that are just like, oh, that's like too much, you know? So I feel like when you go look across the country and, and, and even in other countries, like you develop their own culture. And to me, that's part of like leadership and explaining to your organization, like what, you, what your expectation of them is. Yeah, let's talk. I mean, you mentioned their culture and, and we've talked before 
previously uh, just about your department culture, uh, which seemed to be a culture of accountability. But that's not true everywhere when you read other stories about police going rogue, which which as in our conversations, they always kind of surprise you. Because you didn't see, <laughs> yeah. you didn't see a lot, even though no. it's quite. It seems quite common, uh, or or co- too common. You, you you know, we were talking these task force in Baltimore that was planning guns, and uh, this recent story out of L.A. of the executioners who were getting tattoos with, uh, after they shot someone in the line of duty. Uh, but that's just that was pretty foreign to you in the Sacramento department. Yeah, that's a, and you know, like you said, when you and I have spoken before, when when I got into my organization. There's always been a very clear message that, you know, if you see something wrong and you don't say anything, like you will be fired too. So there's no, like, and I know a lot of people think about, you know, there's a thin blue line and you guys are so insular and you guys won't, you know, narc on each other. But that for me, and this was, you know, I started in 1998. So this was, you know, after Rodney King, um, but before things were like super blowing up. And I knew, like, if I saw something and didn't say something, you know, or I, you know, because early in my career, I felt like I was in IA as a witness on on multiple different things. And to me, I knew, like, if I lied in IA, that's like the end of my career. Like, if they found out I lied in internal affairs, like, I was just fired. And for us, I know, like, I do believe in unions um, because I do think from what I've seen, that any city that could get away with paying cops $10 an hour to put their lives on the the line, they'll do it. So I do think you need a union that has like your back, but also our union is different than like the unions from my impression, like on the East Coast. Like it's, everybody would always joke that our union wasn't a union. It was more like a negotiating body. So they weren't like hardcore and they weren't going to like protect people that did something wrong, but they tried to, but you at the same time, you know, they try to step in and make sure we got paid, like what we should get paid that we had like, you know, protections in place. So we weren't just, you know, if you had somebody that didn't like you, that you couldn't just be like yanked from your job or fired from your job, because that's the other thing you do see is because of political pressures, you'll have a chief fire somebody when you're just like, hey, if you haven't even done like the investigation yet, or you haven't like given it the proper view that it should, like, so I think unions should still be in there. Um, but like I said, with our culture, we all knew that like if you lied in internal affairs, there was nothing the union could do to save you, like you were gone. So I think that's part of like, every time you like tell me these stories about things going on, it always like, I'm always very surprised by it because I felt like in my organization and granted, we like, we've had people that have gotten in, like that have done some really bad things, but we've never had like, um, a like group of people doing something together. I think the last, the last thing that ever occurred, like as far as a group was right before I got hired. And it was, you know, a group of, um, if I understand it correctly, narcotic officers that were taking um, darts when they would do a search warrant. It was kind of like a, like a trophy. Um, but it's still, you know, that's somebody's property. Like, even though you think, oh, it's a, who cares? Like, it's a dart. But no, like my organization looked at that and said, no, that's 
that's theft. Like the sergeant got fired. Um, and every single person on the team got disciplined. They were all, all of them were kicked out of detectives. So that's how I came onto my department, you know, is like seeing that. Um, and then the same thing with like FTOs, like it was very clear to me that if I, that's a field training officer, right? I'm just, just to clarify yeah, the acronyms. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Field training officer. And the same thing, like your culture starts there with your field training officer is like, you see how they treat people and you see like what they do and they teach you how to communicate. And so you start learning like, okay, here's the culture of my organization. Like this thing's okay. That's, that thing's not okay. You know? Is there a feedback loop with the unions in the sense that they come in to protect, they, they exist to protect the the livelihood and the jobs of the cops. So as you said, they want to prevent the cops from only getting paid $10 an hour, and they also want to prevent, say, the chief from firing a police officer arbitrarily without cause. But if the union exists to be protecting the cops, then that seems to be somewhat independent of the culture. Right. So we can imagine that if the culture drifts in a bad direction, the union is still protecting the cops, which then makes it harder to address the cultural problems. Is there a way to solve that without undoing or limiting the power of the unions? Uh, you know, that's a, it's a really good question. And I would almost say you'd have to ask somebody that was like in a different, that had a different type of union. Because also, like the way, I always thought our union should be outside of our organization because our union is built of our police officers. Well, they want to promote, you know what I mean? A lot of people on our, our union um, board, they might start early in their career. Well, they want to become a sergeant and a lieutenant or go to specialized units. So they're not like they're working hand in hand with management about like these issues in our agency. So I saw more of a, it was, it was never, I never in my 22 years saw it as being a contentious relationship between our management and our union. It was always like, you know, how do we, how do we get things for the officers, but how do, but we also understand like the organization is up against, you know, budget constraints or whatever. So even one of my years, we gave up our 5% raise because it was during the recession and they were going to cut cops. So, you know, the union came back to us and said, hey, look, like if we don't take our last raise on our contract, you know, we could save the young officers from losing their jobs. So we all voted and just, you know, gave up our last raise. So I think like, and that's hard. That's why I think some of the difficulty in policing to some extent is that you have 18,000 different police agencies and there's 18,000 different cultures and how they work and do things. Um, so I think, like I said, it's hard for me to answer stuff about the union because I don't think our union quite works like the East other Coast. union. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to try not to be, you know, like pointing fingers, but yeah, we don't, like, yeah, <laughs> not like the East Coast at all. Shortly before you became a police officer uh, in 1997, uh, the federal government created something that I've read about called the 1033 program, which is which is surplus military gear distributed to law enforcement agencies around the country, uh, and that has become pretty prominent, especially since Ferguson and Cato. We've been writing about it since it came out. Um, how did that did you see a change over your tenure in the use of that gear and and maybe the attitude toward using that gear 
and maybe like a, a, a level of blaseness about using, say, a tank and a grenade launcher and battering rams to to serve a drug search warrant. Um, I, so I don't think I saw a change um, because I feel like our practices stayed relatively the same over those twenty two years. I didn't I didn't feel like we became more militaristic over that time. Um, what I mostly see, and that's why sometimes I, I have a hard time, like with some of the arguments, like in policing, because it seems like such a, um, like in some sense, like a superficial argument or something that you're trying to say, like, look, this leads to this. And it's not that simple because to me, I almost think, and somebody who's got more time on could probably argue with me. I actually think it was the development of SWAT if I understand the history a little bit more correctly, that's that center that started centering like those, the, the drug warrants and the high risk warrants to be like this team, right. You know, this, this highly, and, and they are much more militaristic, right. They have all the cool gear. They have the vet, the, you know, like back when I had to wear the regular vests, they had like those tech vests. Um, you know, they have the, not night vision, but you know, they got the late, they got the lasers, they got the sights, they got all that stuff. Right. Um, and it started becoming like that only SWAT did those things because they were high risk. So like I said, it was before my time, but when I hear from cops who were on the street before SWAT became a thing, they were like, well, we would just handle those things. Like, and we were safe and we figured out ways to do it. But I think it was kind of like the, you know, when SWAT was first created, and that's really, you know, a good, cool kids club. And then I think just the way, same way the fire department started becoming more of a medical service because we started to learn how to stop fires and we didn't ha they didn't have as many fires to go to. I think SWAT, in order to maintain your team, you start expanding into, okay, well, what, what else can we do? Okay, we'll do all the drug warrants. We'll do all these like, you know, violent offenders. Like, so they found work to do that maybe they didn't need to do. And granted, my husband was a SWAT guy and a SWAT sergeant. Um, and I'm sure, you know, they all would argue like, no, 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 SWAT should be doing these things. And, and rightfully so. They, they train together. They move well together. They, they know how to do things as things rapidly unfold. But to me, like, I didn't see it in your day-to-day -day operations because we had military equipment. That was the, the – I mean, I mean, you don't see that. As the, I think you pointed out that it's the, the creation of these teams um, and then, like, something for them to do. But the interesting thing is, you know, there's this um, idea. I think it actually comes from the movie Untouchables where Sean Connery says, what is the one rule of policing? And he says, get home safe. And – it's interesting because on some level that is, that could be very pernicious if that is the one rule of policing. Because then why not use a SWAT team if, even if the risk is 1% that the person is armed or, or something? Because that 1% is the possibility that you may not get home safe. Um, as opposed to maybe there should be a few more rules of policing, like 
protect the citizens and the rights of citizens, uh, not just get home safe. And then that becomes, oh, cause like, you know, when you deal with police and you go you know, and you've done panels and I've done panels with police, I mean, that's usually what they throw back at me. I'm like, you don't need to use a SWAT team. And they say, you don't know this job. You don't know how dangerous it could be. Like there's a, you know, there's, there's, there's a 1% chance one of my officers is going to be shot. Then we're going to use a SWAT team. And I'm like, that's the problem right there. You, you just stated the problem. Yeah. And see, and I've heard it the other way too. Like I said, and I feel like my, my agency is probably not indicative of the entire country. Um, but I've had, you know, um, discussions with, he's retired now, but I think he was a captain at the time and he was upset about how somebody handled like a, a suicide call out, you know, that there was a citizen in distress and that like they were trying to use the officers in the field to um, get on the phone with him and like talk him out. And his take on it was like, no, like you're, you're bringing, how did he put it? Like you're bringing our C game. Like you bring the A game always. He's like, why are you waiting to call out like our hostage negotiators and our hostage negotiators? Like, it's not just like you have a hostage. It They're there for like the critical incident too, you know? So he felt like they should have been called out for this, for this, man, even though he had nobody in the house with him, he was by himself because he felt like that was our best trained people, you know, so they should be out there, even though this guy is by himself, not threatening anybody except himself. He was like, he should have, you know, he's our, he's part of our community. He should have our A game, you know, not just, and they did get called out and everything, you know, he came out, it was fine. And he, um, went to our mental health facility to get services. But like my captain was like, he should have been called out two hours earlier, you know, to handle it. So I think I agree that I think policing as a, as a culture across the country, we do fall back on like what's best for us. I think it has been changing. So you do have these shifts. So that's where I saw one of the shifts I saw, because we used to have this like order of like who you're protecting. And, and you're right. Like it was like the officer first and then it shifted to um, citizen first. And I would say where that happened was Columbine um, because you had officers waiting outside. Right. So they were waiting to go in, waiting for SWAT. We'd never seen that before, you know, as far as like an active shooter. Um, so after Columbine and then after you had these other incidences, I watched policing shift more into, okay, there's, there's times and places where you can't, your safety does not come first. Like the citizen's safety comes first. And so like with active shooter, I ran our schools for a bit, like the, the SWAT guy that would come out and train with us. Like he actually, we have this very, like if you talk to anybody that a diamond shape, you know, there's four of you that go in on an active shooter, but like he would actually like walk through scenarios with us. And I, and I thought it was really good for my team because he, like he would ask them, you know, are you going to stand outside when somebody's getting shot inside? You know, are you, are you going to stand outside and wait when you hear shots going off? And you know, statistically, most shooters kill themselves the minute they're confronted by police. Like, are you going to stand outside? And all the officers would be like, no. And he's like, okay, then let's train that you go in by yourself. And then he would run them through drills, like trying to force them into thinking about like, if, if I was going in by myself, like, how would I go in? What would I do? 
what is the best way to keep myself safe so I could get to the shooter and engage as quickly as possible. So that's, to me, that's where I saw one shift in the culture of policing. And I think to me, that one kind of went across the country of that. Like there's times and places where, where citizens have to come first. And there's other times where you can control a situation where you sit and wait. And that was the other shift I probably saw in the last five years of my career, maybe longer. Like you could sit outside and wait. Like you do not have to go kicking front doors all the time. Like, because all you're doing is putting um, both whoever's in the house and yourself into this confrontational um, situation and people could get shot and hurt. Whereas, you know, if everything's going pretty good, like yes, if they have kids in the house, a spouse in the house, or the people you're trying to get them to let them go, but that you have time, we'll just sit and wait. We did, I think on one of our calls, we like went into two and a half days of just like, nope, we're not going to like kick the door. We're just going to sit out here and wait. Um, we know you have your kid inside with you. Um, hopefully um, we could, you know, and we always look for moves you know, cause the SWAT team was like, if the kid gets close enough to a window, can we grab the kid? So that way we've taken, you know, then we could sit here even longer with him and talk to him till he comes out. So that was the other shift I really saw too, um, was the fact that we don't have to push the situation. I'm curious about the relationship between police and police culture and popular media, because one of the things that we have seen over the last several decades is a real rise in, call it police-based entertainment. Like the police procedural is one of the most popular genres of television. And, you know, and I say this to someone like my favorite, my favorite authors are all, you know, are James Elroy, Ed McBain, authors of police procedural novels. And we both Um, love The Shield. And we both love the shield and the wire and, you know, like, and, and so these shows and books are incredibly popular, but they also often, I mean, there are some exceptions, but they often present police officers routinely doing things that are blatantly unconstitutional, you know, and the, the cliche um, in them is, you know, there's there's the rogue police officer who can get the bad guy, but the bureaucrats and the politicians are in his way. And so he ends up in the, you know, he's got to break the rules and there's always the scene of like, turn in your badge and gun. Um, but, you know, that's, he's the hero of it. And, and, and that's, that's the common trope. And I wonder how much that has changed both the public perception of policing in terms of, you know, these limits are the things that are preventing us from getting the bad guys. And that because this media is so popular, people who read it want to become cops, but they think that's the way that cops do or should operate. So I guess my question is twofold is first, what does this popular media get wrong about policing? And second, do you think that the popular media has an influence then on the culture within policing? Yes and yes, but here so and this is a hard one. So I think like when like when the popular media depicts like policing like that that it's the bureaucrats getting in the way, like I think of um I just 
it's not like that. Like there, I've always thought, you know, you could catch a bad guy because usually the ones you catch, you know, like they're not the greatest criminal in the world. We're not dealing with masterminds, you know, for the most part. And the reason why we don't catch people is more because you have a lack of evidence, right? You have a lack of fingerprints, a lack of DNA, no witnesses, um, no, like nobody even knows like who did it. Like if it was a stranger or something, they might like, if they kind of have an idea of like, if they have like a sketchy friend or something that they think did something, then they might have like be able to give you a lead. But for the most part, like policing is very like clear cut in a lot of ways that when you're going out and you're like making a case on somebody, it's a matter of like, are there enough people to talk to that could give you information? Did you get some type of physical evidence that, you know, looks good for the case? And I think the only time, I mean, it sucks because, you know, with prosecution, like the hard part is. I would say is more like with prosecution and I, and I've never seen anybody, um, do anything. Like I've never seen anybody like plant drugs or, you know, violate somebody's constitutional rights. It's more like you get frustrated that when something goes to prosecution that, you know, they're going to drop certain things to get something else or that the prosecutor can't get a win. And that's, you know, like if you want to get a whole, like, into the reward system of the criminal justice field. That's a whole nother issue. But like, it looks better for them to win their cases. So if like you have a case that isn't that strong, but you know, like a lot of times, unless it's like drugs, like you have a victim there. So it really sucks when your victim's going, they're doing what? Like he gets 30 days, you know, and probation. Like that's, you know, all that person gets when they did this horrible thing to me. Are you, are you kidding? So I think with the popular media, like that whole depiction of like bureaucracy stands in the way. Um, like I always think of, did you guys ever see, um, what is it that, how I met a serial killer or how I not. How to become a serial killer. Is that what it's called? Or not, oh, it was what's his face. Oh, I'm going to totally blank on it. I could see it, but throughout the movie, the one character is a cop and he's like, come on, captain, like yell at me and like, tell me how disappointed you are. And like <laughs> that, you know, that you're ashamed of the, the, you know, cop I am. And the captain would be like, but that might like hurt your feelings. And, and I think you do good work. And I've always thought to myself, that's actually like policing because you know, the, the popular media makes it like all this tough guy stuff. And a lot of times it's like, it's, it's not all the tough guy stuff. There are, believe me, there are captains that will shut the door and yell at you. But for the most part, like people don't even act like that when the pop popular media depicts things like that. And I think I was going to say, it's like Miranda, because if, if you think about when Miranda went into effect, I know cops were like, Oh my God, we're never going to, you know, we're never going to prosecute anybody because of Miranda. Well, no, everybody adjusts. They do what they're legally required to do. There's still good cases. You know, we still put people in jail. Like the law functions the way it functions for a reason. Well, I mean, the interesting thing for me, and it's something I've thought a lot, I've just sort of th thought through myself. I mean, I'm a constitutional scholar. And so I do, a, I get to see a bunch of cases, work on a bunch of cases uh, that go to the Supreme Court with cops arguably or maybe doing something illegal uh, or unconstitutional. But given the level of, like, I if I were a cop and 
you know, I, I, you have that sense that someone is guilty. And it, I mean, I, and I don't, you know, just, I don't, I think that probably is often correct, but you got nothing on them, right? So you, you, you're, you're upset that the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment, uh, are constraining you from, you know, just figuring out that this guy is totally guilty. But, and then if the next thought that enters your head is if I violate the Fourth Amendment in some way, how likely is it that anything is going to happen to me? I mean, who's going to see it? Like, how likely is it that, that they're going to have an attorney, a criminal defense attorney who can raise the issue? Um, and so, you know, I'm, for the greater good, I'm going to just, you know, violate the Fourth Amendment, you know, not, not egregiously, but like technically at least, let's say, uh, because I know this guy is guilty. And then guess what? He was guilty. So, so I did, I did a good thing there. Um, you know, still understand the constitution, but ultimately I did a good thing. I feel like that would be a very common struggle and that a significant amount of cops would step over that line. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Well, that's what, but that's what I mean. I don't, I just, I don't, I think that's the popular media. I don't think you come upon that very much. You know what I mean? Like most of these people that are going to jail, it's like, there's pretty clear cut evidence. Like it's, I mostly see, so like I had, like, I I see it more like I had a slip up when I was interviewing um, one of my cases and and I didn't mean to, it was completely unintentional, but the way I worded my questioning was basically like coercion. Like, and I didn't, I didn't think of it at the time. I learned from that case because his whole statement got thrown out and I was pissed at myself. But you know what I mean? Like, because for the most part, like if you have a good case, like it's all there. I've never like run into that case where it's like, I know you did this and I can't prove it. Like, there's proof. Like we're, if you think about where we've gotten to technology wise today, like if you've done something like so bad that somebody really wants to put you away, like there's, there's usually pretty good evidence. Like not many people are getting away with murder, right? Unless, unless there's nothing like, unless except they nothing. are, except they're maybe in a place like Baltimore and Chicago, you have murder arrest rates that are like 30% clearance rates. But that's so what I mean. They, like, unless you don't know who, did it like unless you know what I mean like if you don't have any leads nobody's telling you who did it because and we see those even in Sacramento where it's like they know who did it but it's a gang turf war so they're just going to go shoot that person that they know did it you know and they go back and forth but it's not a matter of like I I can't like build a good enough case against you usually what I've seen is that if you know who did it Nowadays, with cell phone technology, with DNA, with videos, I mean, what I found from like our homicide detectives, they've gotten so good at like checking the cameras from the nearby stores that catches something. So somebody always leaves like a footprint. But yes, you're right. Like clearance rates in communities that aren't going to talk to the cops, because then the cops have nowhere to start to look for the information. So like, once again, like that could be the case in some other um, police department where they, you know, try to pin something on somebody. Yeah. But I mean, that would, I think you would just be so, I mean, I think you would just be hard pressed to do it. Like it still happens. I mean, there was that shooting where the dude dropped a taser and I was like, oh my God, like who does that? But apparently there are Planted a taser, you mean? Yeah, on the shooting and was it South Carolina when he shot the dude in the back and then said he was struggling over his taser but walked over and dropped the taser next to him? This 
though raises a question then about, I guess, good cops and bad cops. Like we – so we're recording this while there are protests going on around the country in many of our cities about about policing. Um, so there's a there's a systemic racism angle to it, but there's also a police brutality and misconduct angle to it, and we're watching police often respond to this in really terrible ways. You know, the cops are being brutal with peaceful protesters, using tear gas where they shouldn't, beating people up, and so on. Um, I also, I spent, maybe a month ago, I spent some time reading police forums, um, so places where police officers are discussing being a police officer and was rather shocked at how they how they perceived the people that they were supposed to be protecting that you got this guy's this strong sense of like us versus them that we we being police officers are a persecuted minority that nobody understands and it it often read like the way that you would expect soldiers who are an occupying force in another country to talk about the people that like everyone that they were interacting with was a potential threat and so on. Um, but what you're describing and, and your department feels very different. And so there's this conspicuous disconnect between the popular conception of police and the reason that we have these protests and Black Lives Matter and so on, what you're describing, but also – I guess is are we overinterpreting from a handful of really bad departments um and what do police officers in the better departments like the one that you worked in think about the police in in these cities where it seems to be particularly egregious and and why don't we see more i guess if it is if it is a handful of bad departments a handful of bad cops why don't we see more of the good cops coming forward and ratting out these people um pushing them out of the department and so on so i guess at the broad level like what you're describing in your department doesn't feel like what we seem to be seeing and what the country seems to be reacting against yeah, um, that is a broad question because, okay, so let's roll that back into like the protests. Um, and it, and it's hard too, cause right, like you have these touch points. So I think most cops like try really hard, one, not to judge cops, you know, because you're not there. Things happen so quickly and you're just responding. To me, you know, your limbic, you know, brain part of your brain that is what is functioning when like these type of things are happening and you're doing the best you can to like think and move and react all at the same time i think though with like the george floyd incident you know you saw a lot of police agencies basically say like we don't agree with this either you saw police agencies stand up and, and walk with their communities and you saw police chiefs you know take off their belts and say let me walk with you because i don't agree with this either so and and in the case of like George Floyd, from my understanding, he's like a rookie cops there that, you know, however many days in and it's hard, you know, the culture of like a field training officer and you're trying to tell them, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. 
Like a field training officer is just going to brush you off because they're going to be like, you're, you're new. Like, what do you know? Um, but I think like with the incidents across the country, when it comes to like the protests and, and the bad behavior that you see, I think often it's, you got to reel like your people back in. And I think you got to give your leadership a chance to like, let them get everybody situated. Cause I think a lot of times when it comes to protests, like I've always, when people would say, you know, as a cop, like, what are you scared of? I would always tell them two things, dogs and protests. Because what you see in protests are a whole lot of anonymity and people are pissed and you are not, um, you are not a person to them. You are not a human being. Like if they could drag you into the middle of a crowd, like my feel is, they would beat you to death and have no, like the Black Hawk down, the Somalia scene where they're carrying, you know, the pilot's bodies through and they're all cheering. Like to me, that's what, how people get during protests because it's a it's a mass of people who are all like like um feed yes thank you feeding off each other's energy and it just really like it's to me it's kind of terrifying you know that like you're standing there and the only way you're protected is because you're in a line with your other officers to like push them back or stand there and i've never been in a protest like the cops are in now where they're using these green lasers or they're throwing, you know, frozen water bottles at them or chunks of rocks. I've only been in those protests where they pop off suddenly. And it's usually a group of fair, fairly like, you know, younger people. And they're just out to like, create a little havoc. They're not really like there to, you know, burn, torture or maim. And I think these protests have turned drastically different. And like, to me, I don't know that there's a good, I don't know that there's a good solution because I think when you have protests night after night after night and you have officers just taking like a beating at some point they're going to crack. Like I have a good friend of mine that has PTSD from being three months straight out on the Occupy protests, you know, and that wasn't even as violent, you know, those were just you know, people screaming at you every night and like blowing whistles in your ear. So I think one, I do think there is like people are reacting um, to these incidents that aren't indicative of policing across the country. And I think there's like, there's ways to get like cops out, but a lot of times like cops could have like some issues, like maybe they're rude. Like we, every police department has your guy or gal that you're kind of like, Oh, don't show up on my call. Cause they just, it's just like they're, they, yeah, they're just, it's their tone or it's their stance or their whatever. And you just, yeah, you just know that they're going to show up on scene and they're not going to help, you know, but you can't, it's not fireable, you know, you can't like get rid of them, you know? And then if, God forbid a shooting occurs with them, then everybody's like, oh, look, they've been a jerk their whole career. It's like, well, does being a jerk their whole career have anything to do with this particular shooting? Or did they just happen like this kind of happened? So I think there, there's a there's got to be a lot more work done as far as, and Trevor, you know, I'm all about the research, but there's got to be a lot more work done you know, research wise on like what happens, why it happens, the best way to do these things. Right now they're pushing de-escalation training across the country and nobody even knows what that means. 
yeah, and it's 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 interesting though because we've described events to me where there is such there's there's such thing as escalation, so it implies that there's such thing as de-escalation, um, and. If cops come in, you know, I read a book <clears throat> written in the sixties a few years ago about analyzing situations of police violence. And the biggest source of causing police violence was essentially the respect my authority issue where you have a cop that tells you to do something and you don't do it. And the next thing you know, you're on the ground in a pretzel, which I kind of can get that, but it also seems extremely problematic if that's all that is needed to use force on someone that you just don't don't do exactly what a police officer says, you know. Even if you're just on the scene, like stop recording me or something like that. That the next thing you know, you're going to be violently accosted. That's escalation, and that seems to happen a lot. I mean, I don't know if in your experience that that was in Sacramento, but in some places it seems to happen a lot. See, and it's, it's so that's and there's a hard balance there. So, and you know, as cops, especially like I feel like where. I came from, you know, we, we have these talks and we have discussions and there's a balance between, and granted, I never think it's right. Like if somebody, we call it contempt of cop to go hands-on with somebody for contempt of cop. Like when I had trainees, um, you know, I was constantly on them about like even small things, like when we would drive to jail, you know, and the person in the backseat of the car would start chipping at my, you know, trainee saying whatever. You know, my trainee would start in and I would always reach across the car, you know, like really low. So whoever's in the back seat couldn't see me, but I would just touch their arm and I would shake my head. And afterwards I would tell them, I'd be like, look, like you've won. This person's going to jail. Like in this power struggle that you're, <laughs> that you're having, you're the winner. They are, they are now going to jail for whatever they have done. There is no need to go back and forth in the car. First of all, what is, I can't even remember the saying about, you know, trying to argue with a fool, like that means there's like two fools in the argument or whatever. Something like, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Because to me, like when I would listen to these conversations, one, it would just give me a migraine because I was like, shut up. But, but two, I was just like, it, you're, you're, in a, you're engaging in a power struggle. That is what you're doing by going back at him or her. Like it doesn't like stop. Like just let it go. You, and, let, and this, the, let them call you whatever they want. Who exactly. Cares? Yeah. And that for me, like I've always kind of said, like for me as a cop, I always felt like you could do whatever you want to me. And I didn't take it personally and it didn't like rile me up. I think probably the only times I'd ever gotten riled up in my career was when I would see people do things to other people. Because like for me, that's, that is part of like ultimately why I, why I became a cop is because like when you talk about having that power, right? Like the power to do whatever. For me, I liked having the power to protect somebody else to say, you can't do that anymore to that person. Like, so for me, like when I saw people like victimize somebody or degrade somebody or do something horrible to somebody, like that could get me fired up more than you could call me all the B's and H's in the world you want. And I'm just like, okay, have a, have a nice day. But if I saw you do something to somebody else, that is like where, and throwing your cigarettes out the window when you're driving, just a massive pet peeve of mine. That's <laughs> so that one might cause you to get handsy. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny is I actually had, um, there was this restaurant that I've been going to since I was, you know, in college. And I knew the owner since 
that time. And then she had this really younger sister and her sister finally started working in the restaurant and she was introducing me to her and she's like, she didn't want to come say hi because she's scared of you. I was like, why? And she's like, you yelled at her. I'm like, when? I'm like, tell her to come out. So she comes out and she tells me, she goes, I was driving with my boyfriend and he threw a cigarette out the window and you pulled us over and you came up to the window and, <laughs> and she's like, and you bet she's like, you just like yelled at him and, and you said like you were too busy to give him a ticket, but that was a thousand dollar ticket. And if he like, he's just lucky that you don't have time to give him a ticket. And she's like, and then you took off. I'm like, that's funny. I said, because it must have been that I was really like, I had to go somewhere. I said, because I always give a ticket for that. I said, she's like, yeah, you scared me. She's I'm like, no, it's just like that starts fires. California is very dry. Like use your ashtray in your car. There's no reason to litter. Well, so. that, that, that raises the question of like discretion in this uh, regard where you do have a fairly large amount of, you know, you, you have a pet peeve and, you, you know, I think it's especially in California justifiable to be concerned about that. But other officers might have different pet peeves that yes. maybe, and, and then they can do whatever they want. But even, even at a broad level, the question of what are officers going to enforce? So d- did you see political pressures come down in terms of, hey, you know, the city council or the state government is getting really uh, concerned about the drug war and they're getting constituent calls about drug users. So we're ramping up drug user crackdowns this month or something along those lines where it's just, it's it's entirely political where someone says, hey, you know, I'd rather solve actual violent crime or, you know, was a victim and not spend so much time on the drug war, but I'm being told to spend more time on the drug war. Uh, is that, did those kind of pressures come down? Um, well, you'll laugh, but the one that I remember the most, because everybody hated it, was the homeless and the shopping carts. Like, we actually were siding and taking the carts and locking them. Like, we would lock them to the street lamps. And then somebody within the city would come around and like pick up all the shopping carts. But it was somebody's, you know, pet peeve. So it became, that's what everybody does. But I've seen more, I've seen it more on the other side with politics where like the community engagement stuff, you know, that like a city, city council wants more of that. So you ended up like the officers went through a whole stint of like reading to elementary school kids, you know, and those are the things like where a lot of times you get this mission creep because I think the officers felt like, what is, what is this doing? Like, how is this like going to help kids not commit crime like later in life? Like me reading a book to them, you know, once a month in their classroom, like, isn't like, what is it doing? But it's taking away taxpayers' monies when we should be, you know, doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, catching bad people, doing bad things. So, and the drug war like that in California, you saw the shift. I saw the shift the other way, too, is when they um, dropped everything to a misdemeanor, it just stopped getting enforced because like now you're just giving a ticket for certain like drugs in small amounts. Like the officers were like, what's the point? Like, why would I stop you and write you a ticket and go through all this effort when like it's not even going to go anywhere with prosecution? Same way with theft. California made. Um, like you could up to a thousand dollars, like you didn't go to jail. So like petty theft stuff went up and within the um, retail industry, you know, so I, I think I saw a little bit more of like 
the other way where it's always been pressure for community engagement stuff. And then seeing like police agencies chase their tail to try to do some type of community engagement. Because for, for me, the war on drugs was a little bit more, um, uh, I was, you know, 98. So I was at the tail end of that, you know, so I didn't really like when I started in the department, I saw a lot more like we had a narcotics unit, like out in the field, if you found dope, you know, that meant you're a good cop. There was a little bit more of that when I started. But over my years, like that went away probably in the first, I don't know, four to five years of working where you just like didn't have, and there wasn't pressure for that either. It was um, just kind of like it was better to get a felony than it was to get a misdemeanor. And it was better to get a fresh arrest versus like a warrant. That was kind of my culture and my organization. Yeah, it's. I just, I I'll, this conversation and so many conversations with Renee, I just feel like we just need to. Rep- replicate the Sacramento Police Department across the country, <laughs> um, but on that point, because we're, we talked a lot, a lot, and we're almost out of time. But um, in general, uh, if you had something where you said, you know, I wish people realized this about policing um, and had a little bit more knowledge about this, so we could have a constructive, you know, conversation about reform as is currently ongoing. What would be that kind of, you know, things or thing thing or things that you wish people, you know, really realized about policing? Well, I would say maybe it's twofold. I really wish that they understood that what happens in, you know, Wisconsin or South Carolina or wherever is not Sacramento. You know what I mean? Like you have to get to know your own police agency where you're working to get like to to know whether you should be like pissed at them or not. Because I think people think that policing is the same everywhere you go. And just like you and I have talked about, like it's not like the way I was raised in my agency is very different from the way other cops are raised in their agencies, you know, and even across like different countries. Cause you know, I've gotten the chance to be over in the UK and New Zealand, you know, and there's things to like bring back to our, um, to America that we should be doing. But I think it's that idea that like we're, we're all the same. And then just like the, like what you asked at the beginning in the conversation, like, you know, this, um, stereotype of like what cops are there for and like what they want because I think most cops like even that safety factor of you know you got to come home every night I think the majority of cops like I have friends that like would do the whole drive a different way home every night like I've never been that way my husband and I we never carry a gun off duty like we had one gun the whole entire time we've been married it's in three pieces inside a safe because we have children, like we, like we don't have an us and them like mentality, you know what I mean? So I just like, to me, I feel like everybody else hates being grouped into some stereotype yet stereotyping cops is like an okay, cool thing to do to be like, all cops are bastards, you know, all cops do blah, blah, blah. And then I also think the other thing is, I think like a lot of people see these like superficial things as a way to like solve the policing problem, like defunding the police. And believe me, I try to stay like with my Facebook friends. I even like commented the other day because there was a very simplistic cartoon that was like, oh, everybody thinks defund the policing means this. And it showed like a picture of a cop with all these stones on his back of like, you know, community service, you know, arrest, mental health, drugs, all the issues we deal with. Right. And then like, taking money away and he had to 
hold it himself versus like reallocation, which means those rocks go to these other groups. And all I tried to point out was like, look, it's, it is much, we're dealing with human beings. It is much more complex than just saying, oh, get a mental health worker. Because often I don't think people realize that the people that we deal with in society are the people that don't want to follow societal norms. And when I say that, I mean, a lot of the homeless that I deal with, they don't want services. They don't want help. They want to live by the river and they want to continue like doing their drugs, keeping their animals, keeping their significant others, and they don't want to give up part of their SSI check towards housing. They would rather have that money that they get every month to use as they see fit. So I think people think like, oh, if you just had these services, like everything would be fine. And they don't realize, well, no, a lot of people don't want to be involved with society. Like, and they don't want to do what you think is best for them as a society, which means when you, citizen A, want citizen B to stop doing something because it's, you know, bothering you in some ways, the only person left to go out there really is a cop that can make somebody stop doing something. And when I say make, I mean either, like sometimes it's just like, hey, it's time to go. And they'll listen to a cop because you're the authority. Sometimes you have to take somebody to a mental health facility. Sometimes you have to take them to jail or give them a citation or tow their car or do whatever. But a city worker cannot make anybody do something. So I think that's the part, like, it just pains me so much to hear all of this going on in the media and all the negativity. And then all these people that come in with all these simplistic solutions. And it's like, that's not how it works in the field. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's deeper than that. And unless you have like rational conversations and you start using research to really, and data to think about these issues and solve them, to me, this is one of those rewind, repeat and play over and over and over again with everybody getting pissed. Let's do police reform. That turns into de-escalation training implicit bias training, procedural justice training, and everything stays the same. And five years later, we're doing it all over again. So to me, I think if people would just somehow understand that you have to give this problem like the time and resources and effort that it's going to take to solve these very complex human problems, other than, you know, like the popular media, it's not going to be all solved in a 60-minute TV show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.